0: know, and I've stopped smiling, I'll get going here. oh boy, hmm. remember what I said at the outset about today's met nah, forget that. I was just kidding, not really, it's not any worse than most of them. It's just you know ah. Well, as we begin this morning, continuing through the book of Mark, chapter 8, we'll be looking at verses 11, maybe through 21, I'm not sure yet. And again, I just want to remind us about the juxtapositioning of pericopes. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to do that, it just kind of flows out of me. Uh, that, you know, that has a ring to it, right? The juxtapositioning of pericopes. Again, that's one of those phrases you can use if you're in a tight spot with somebody. Right, And just finally put your hands on your hips and very comfortably go, you know what? It's, it's all about the juxtapositioning of piece And they'll just be, what, what, I don't know what hit me.
1: Gosh.
0: I'm just trying to prepare you for Dr. Ravi Zacharias at the y Jesus seminar. So there you go. There, There we go. Now I feel better. 5,000. Wait, what's the capacity? Oh, okay. I was thinking it was 5,000. That's tough, especially since we don't have our tickets yet. Okay. Anyway, um, yes, back to the Gospel of Mark. So Jesus departs once again. Boy, then, you know, the way Mark does things, and he does this intentionally, right? He doesn't linger too long on any one particular scene. It's just boom, 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 boom. And so Jesus is departing again with the disciples and the Pharisees, who, of course, by now here in Chapter 8, want to destroy Jesus. And they want to destroy him because of all the miracles that he has worked. Remember what I just said right there. Just kind of parked that on the shelf. And they are on the war path because Jesus was continuing to grow in popularity. And while that might seem like a good thing, just remember that the crowds as today back then also were very wanting of a vending machine God. Put your token prayer in, your token of faith, press your selection, the roller goes around, out comes your dispatched little thing, whatever it is, because God is there for our beck and call. Well, from the second chapter of Mark forward, what we were told back in chapter 3 is that the Pharisees were watching Jesus to see if he would heal the man on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And Jesus said to them, that is to the Pharisees, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? Which incidentally, that was really another barb at the Pharisees because the Pharisees knew the Old Testament and they knew the law obviously very well. And there were stipulations even in the law of Moses for doing certain things on the Sabbath that normally were prohibited. And one of them was, again, for the loss of life or injury of an individual and that sort of thing. So Jesus is just kind of jabbing it into them. But the Pharisees kept silent. (laughs) Yeah, you bet they did. And looking around at them with anger, but grieved at the hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. So this is the backdrop for what happens next, and that's why I took the time to read that again. And we don't want to lose sight of things that we've already gone over just because they occurred a few chapters ago or in our context, you know, perhaps even several weeks ago. As we go through our journey in this book. So now we're on the next vignette that Mark brings forward in verse, beginning in verse 11. The Pharisees came out and they began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, why does this generation seek for a sign? On the surface, seems like a pretty straightforward, relatively mindless kind of verse that you can read quickly and then rush through, and most of us have done over the years. This morning, that's going to change. Sighing deeply in his spirit, Jesus said, why does this generation seek for a sign? So let's spend a little time on this. The word that is translated, sighing deeply or grieving deeply, depending on the translation, is a rare word in the original language. In fact, this is the only place in the entire Bible where this word occurs, where it's used. You say, well, only the New Testament was in Greek, so what do you mean? No, it's the only place that occurs in the whole Bible, because, you see, the Old Testament was translated into Greek, which is called the Septuagint, if you've ever heard that word. And so, good linguistic studies goes back to the people of the day who interpreted the Old Testament into the Greek, and again, this is the only place in the entire Bible where this unique word is used. It connotes a visceral you know what that means That means at a a, a gut level okay we're not talking about some superficial kind of of feeling or what have you it's a visceral sort of soul engulfing anguish. So now think of all of the situations that Jesus has already gone through, and think of the situations that Jesus will go through, and we want to pause for a moment and ask ourselves, okay, why is this particular word used here now? Considering the situation, it seems like it doesn't really fit. Now why do I say that? Well, let's shoot ahead, in a sense, in the life of Christ to where Jesus is in another gut-wrenching situation, where he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we read that passage, and we're very familiar with that passage, and we find out that Jesus is in anguish over his impending fate. And so there, we get a picture of Jesus who is pleading with the Father not to have to go through. With what lies ahead, if there is some other way to accomplish your and my salvation. And the emotional gut wrenching, the soul deep stress in the garden was so intense that Luke, who remember was a physician by trade, physician Luke writes, In chapter 22 of his gospel, verse 44, this is in the RCV, this the Revised Cripe Version. And being in agony, this by the way is word for word from the Greek. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently and his sweat was as clots of blood falling upon the ground. Now, why do I underscore or heighten it like that? Because remember, Luke was a physician. You ever heard the word thrombus or embolus, embolism? Okay, an embolism is simply a clot that is moving. A thrombus is a clot that is stationary. All right? The text says thrombus. It's where we get our word clot from, thrombus, right out of the Greek. And you see other translations, though, that I checked, and I checked quite a few, say they, they interpret this or translate this, that he sweat like drops of blood. But the language that Dr. Luke uses is not the language of metaphor, but rather is a literal phenomenon in the medical world today called hematodrosis. It is that phenomenon, though while rare, persons under extreme stress have exhibited the phenomenon where the rupture of superficial capillaries, which are the smallest capillary vessels in our body, where the superficial capillaries situated next to sweat glands burst just from the the anxiety, from the stress from emotional anguish or whatever kind of anguish it happens to be. And so the blood bleeds into the sweat glands so that a person literally sweats drops of blood. I knew you wanted to know that. This occasion now, remember we're in the Garden of Gethsemane. This occasion in the Garden would seem to be of everything that Jesus went through except for the, you know, the crucifixion itself seems to be a great place to use such an intense, emotional, stress-filled word as Mark uses here of Jesus in verse 12, which I already said is translated to sigh deeply or to grieve deeply. But it isn't. So again, why, given our understanding of the doctrine of inspiration, meaning specific words carry weight because they have been superintended by The author, ultimately, who is God himself, the Holy Spirit. So why this unique word occurs only here and now, and relating to the Pharisees. Hmm. Let me read the passage again. The Pharisees came out and began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. All right, now, this is where it gets a little confusing, and I apologize. I tried to work it several different ways, and it was still confusing. So, let me pause now on the sighing deeply word, because now we have something else I want to deal with for a moment. Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. What do you mean that no sign shall be given to that generation? And he was referring to the Pharisees and speaking about the Pharisees and those of their ilk. Hadn't they already experienced and seen all kinds of signs? And the answer is yes, they have. But you see, the word there that's translated generation is the word in the original, which routinely because it's convenient, I suppose more than anything, is translated generation. But the semantic range of that word genea is far more than just generation. It can mean generation for sure, but it also can mean uh, this this type, or this kind, or this race, or this clan, or this nation. And the reason, again, I'm highlighting this is because it is this word that causes all kinds of heartburn in the passages recorded in three of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where each one of them records, for, for our purposes, I'm only citing Matthew chapter 24:34. Truly I say to you, this generation, it's the same word, genea, will not pass away until all these things take place. And the passage there is referring to the fulfilled conditions preceding the coming of Christ the second time. But you see, that generation, as it's translated, implying a highly defined group of people born from one date to another date, shall not pass away until all things listed concerning the second coming shall come to pass. But Here's the problem. That generation has long passed away, obviously, and yet all these things that are spelled out there have not taken place. And so, as you might imagine, people go, Ah, see, that's just one, again, of many Bible contradictions. Or is it? Not when you consider... Now, as I already said, the broad semantic range of the word genet, which could as readily mean, as I said, this type or kind shall not pass away until all these things come to pass. Meaning what? In the context of the passage where this occurs, this kind could mean the perpetual, ongoing, through the years, through the millennium, line of doubters, unbelievers, or unfaithful, who will still be hanging around, wringing their hands, doubting and unbelieving, when, in fact, all these things come to pass. And now you see, if you do that, and this is not stretching, this is using the linguistics of Scripture to the fullest. If you do that, the so-called contradiction completely disappears. Go figure. All right, I'm getting a bit far afield, so let me get back to that rare word. Again, given the what we understand the doctrine of inspiration as, the Holy Spirit has compelled Mark. He didn't just, you know, grab it willy-nilly but the Spirit has urged Mark, compelled Mark, made sure that he used that particular word and that it's nowhere else in the Bible. The word describes Jesus being in a phenomenally, probably incomprehensible, soul-deep sorrow at the hardness of the heart of the Pharisees who simply refused to humble themselves and receive Jesus as who he is. Stay with me. So now let me paraphrase the passage to help us get what I think might be here. A paraphrase of 8 through 13. After all the Pharisees themselves had already heard and seen and experienced with Jesus, They again came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him yet another sign from heaven to try him for blasphemy. But they weren't seeking another sign to convince themselves or to draw closer in faith, but rather to try him. We're told that, point blank. Then, sighing deeply in his spirit, Jesus said, why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation, for you won't believe them anyway. And leaving them, he again embarks and went away to the other side. All right, what is the point of all this? And why did I feel this is worthwhile spending time on it? Because as angry as Jesus got with the duplicitous, hard-hearted, wretched Pharisees, and their kind, and all who are like them throughout the generations of man, Jesus is not gleeful about their fate. Jesus is smitten using this unique word. He is smitten to the depths of his being that they insist on rejecting him, and thus they reject their eternity with him and will face a forever in hell. The one who came to seek and to save those who are lost gets into a boat and he leaves the lost in their condition of rebellion and their destiny to live eternally apart from him. Jesus groaning in his spirit is not out of anger or aggravation or frustration. But it is out of a gut-wrenching anguish for those who have rejected their only hope. How different Jesus is from me. I have a hard time, you see, separating a person's lunacy to believe anything and everything under the sun except that which is true. I know none of you do, but I'm just bringing out true confessions here. The person who rejects Jesus as being a wild myth will go out at midnight, at the winter solstice, and hold their own worship service to the stars, worshiping the stars themselves. It's called neopaganism. It's what the Druids did. And if you think, well, boy, that's really digging into the past. Sports fans, really? There used to be, and I don't know if it still is, but certainly in while our time being here, out in Albion, I believe it was, there was a whole Druid community. And at Colby College, you could go up on that hill and you could see burnings in the grass where I've been told from reliable sources that, among other things, that was there from the neo-pagan group at Colby holding their midnight festivals or whatever it is they do. But Jesus, (laughs) yeah, it's just a myth. I'm going to go up and kiss a tree and bow down to it. See, even even in, in my sharing that with you, there's that tone of, you moron! Right? I, mean, I can't get away from it! It's me! The people who reject the compassionate, loving Jesus of Scripture, who came for them will blow themselves up, murdering men, women, and children, and even other Muslims, believing that in so doing they are blowing themselves into the presence of Allah. People who by doctrine reject the revelation of Christ, and I'm referring to what is here, not what is is in the Book of Mormon, readily embrace the hope of inheriting their own planet where they will populate it through their incessant male ideal of heaven where their eternity will be dominated with repopulating the universe and on and on it goes. Jesus anguished In an incomprehensible way at the Pharisees' belligerent spirit. And yet he shouted from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. But I want to scream and I want to shout epithets at people for being so stupid. Earning their reward of eternal hell because of their belligerence. Which implies something. Which implies that I believe at some level that it is through my sheer brilliance and intellect and acumen and reasoned faith that I see so clearly. So why don't you? That's what's at the bottom of it. The Apostle Paul though is clear on this matter. Romans chapter 3 beginning in verse 10. It is written, and when he says it is written, he's pulling this out of the Old Testament from Psalm 19. There is none righteous, there's not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. That includes you, Cripe. Well, no, I've been on a quest and search for you. No, you haven't. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, With whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What was the first part of this? There is none righteous. Not even one. And so, what I have to own is that is the biblical assessment. That's the biblical, inspired, infallible assessment of who I am. Who I am. Apart from the grace of God. I did not come to the Lord because I reasoned it out and made the only logical and right conclusion. No one can come to me, John records in chapter 6 of his Gospel, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Jesus was deeply grieved in his spirit because he was heartbroken knowing the consequences of the Pharisees and those like them, rejection. When I am deeply grieved, it is because I have to endure such inferior species as the rest of the inhabitants of planet Earth. You say, wow, really? Is that what you really think, Pastor? Well, it must be. I mean, how else do you explain everything I've already said about me and about what the Bible says about me? That's what I must think, at least when I'm in my own little world of self-deception, which is most of the time. But then the Lord reminds me here and there through one means or another that he didn't choose me because I was so awesome. (laughs) Really? Are you sure? (laughs) Watch out for lightning. He chose me and he chose you exactly the same way that he chose his favored people called Israel. Well, how did he choose Israel? And why? Well, let's find out. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Well, I like the way that begins. You are a holy people to the Lord your God. So, okay, so this doesn't really fit what you're saying. I mean, God's obviously chosen you and me because we are holy. So that's okay. Because unlike the rest of the earthly rabble throughout time immemorial, I... Am choose worthy. Like his favorite people, Israel. We just read it. What a people of holiness, of genius, of obedience, and of faith. (laughs) Hmm. Yeah, if you were here last week. How could God not choose them and me? You see? I am awesome. Oh, 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 oh. But wait, in case you misunderstand. And you think it really is because you are so awesome? God says, I included two more verses right after verse 6. Oh, we're out of time. Okay. Now, verse 6 started out great, but there's a verse 7 and verse 8. Let's read it. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. But in fact, you are the fewest of all peoples. Now, this has to do with 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 not just you know population or number, it has to do with size equating to greatness, equating to power, equating to everything you saw back in the negative at the Tower of Babel and all of that. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. Think about Easter Sunday message and all that I talked about concerning Abram and Melchizedek. Think about last week's message. It's easy to see what a bunch of thick, skulled, hard-headed imbeciles Israel was. And yet God chose them not because of who they were, but in fact in spite of who they were. That's the point of the Deuteronomy passage. And then it dawns on me that, yeah, I was chosen just like Israel. And what a wretch I really am, apart from his grace and the power of his Holy Spirit at work in me. Jesus was anguished about the Pharisees' hardness towards him. And what's interesting to me is that from all that Mark records, and again the brevity of the passage that we just finished, verses 10 through 13, it would appear that Jesus Getting in the boat now and taking the disciples to Dalmanutha was solely to confront the Pharisees yet one more time. And yet one more time to sternly put them in their places only to get back into the boat and head back across the sea. So in verse 14, Mark has them in the boat traveling once again when it dawns on the disciples that they had forgotten to take along a fresh supply of bread for the journey. And they discover they've only got one loaf of bread between them. And in verse 15, Jesus says, He was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Disciples cracked me up. So they began to discuss with one another the fact that they they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Really? (laughs) Do you not see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? How many times have we heard Jesus put these rhetorical questions right into the face? of the disciples, verses 18 to 21. Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of bread, uh, full of broken pieces you picked up? And they said to him, 12. And when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large basketfuls of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet get it? And I wonder, honestly, how many of you are following me to this point and going, I'm not sure I get it. Well, get what? What is it that they aren't getting this time? Well, either Jesus has a problem communicating clearly, it would seem, or the men he is training have a problem hearing. Frankly, my money is on Jesus not having a communication handicap. Call me crazy. In this little interchange in the boat that ends as quickly as it begins, Jesus resorts to a manner of communication that he does rather frequently in trying to communicate in such a way that the people that he is desperately trying to reach will be able to, to grab on to what it is he's saying in such a way that that the lights will click on, and they'll get it, and they won't be just kind of dulled by the bare exchange of words that they've obviously heard over and over again. So let me give you a helpful life lesson. Today I'm pretty sure that probably almost all of us have been on the receiving and giving end of email or text messages gone awry <laughs> hmm. misunderstandings due to the limitation of words I'll say on a page or on a screen without benefit of having a face to face Exchange. It's been the cause of many difficulties. You see, when you're face-to-face, communication takes place not only in written or verbal form, but also in physical form. And by the way, just as a side note here, no extra charge for this, this is one reason that I absolutely believe As to why the word, interesting, why the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1.14. So, I'm going to just use an illustration here. Using four I'm sorry's. That's it. Four, two words. Eh, contraction, but two words. Four different I'm sorry's. And I want you to interpret them for yourself. Your phone, Apple, I don't know what, Samsung all that, and goes, bing, and it's a text message from somebody that you know, and you open it up, and it says, I'm sorry. Okay? All right, now I'm assuming that there was some kind of a context in previous messages and all that, but you know, maybe it's been a length of time, and that's all he sees. I'm sorry. Well, okay, what do you make of that? It's kind of ambiguous, or at least it can be. But now, you're face to face. And this, this is, doesn't happen between husband and wife, okay? So this is other relationships out there. And you're in a conversation, and you're really enjoying the conversation. And finally, right, you just want the conversation to be over with. And so you go, I'm sorry. (laughs) Okay. Second one, you're in a conversation. You're enjoying it about as much. But you're resigned because this is no new occurrence. And you're standing there and you're listening and listening and listening. And finally, again, you just want to get out of it and get it done. And so you go, okay. I'm sorry. All right? And the last one. You're in conversation. And you're listening. And you're you're actually listening. And your spirit is getting crushed in all the right ways. And you finally look at the person and you go, Which one of those four would you rather hear? The same exact words, two little words, four entirely different meanings. So face-to-face helps a lot, but even the spoken word in one's presence can become tangled or strangled. If you have or have had children or teenagers or preteens currently in the home, I urge you to think about what I am going to say now and what I am going to, to demonstrate by way of illustration. Go back to the Cripe household. Perfectly as it was run, Three kids in the home, one teenager, one problem, maybe a teenager, maybe a preteen, one adolescent. And the one who's a preteen, I think at the time, I'm not sure, had a little cockatiel named Baby. Well, and I'll just tell you this because I know that maybe one or two parents in here can relate to this. But. Things were kicking up because we're in those preteen teen teen years, right? When conversation kind of steps up. (laughs) You can interpret that any way you want there. You're probably right in all counts. So that my communication to my daughter about who you can see, who you can't see, where you can go when you can't go, how long you can stay out, how long you can't stay out, whose house you can stay over at, whose house you can't stay over with, what you can't, can't do, you're right and it's just, right, you know it. And, of course, you know, over time, this is the goodness truth, it was bedtime, and I went not off, but I was just kind of giving another dad lecture, (laughs) and this little sinner said, oh, recording number 223. And honestly, you know, I don't know, I don't know what my outward reaction was, but inward, I was like, man, do I get it? You know, cause I thought it before you ever said it. You know, and we find ourselves saying the same thing over and over again. Like the more we say it or the louder we say it, it's finally going to sink in. But guess what? If you're not there yet, it doesn't. So I happen to have read a book called <laughs> by Smalley and Trent, um, the language of love. All right. The whole book is about communicating in what are called emotional word pictures. So anyway, so, okay. So one day, not one day, our daughter had this habit of taking baby out of the cage. Okay. Baby's a stupid cockatiel that, uh, Yeah, I mean, she was. She was very sweet. Okay. But very stupid. Or bird. She was a bird brain. Okay. You gotta give her some slack. And so anyway, she, here's the routine. She'd go in, she'd get baby on her finger, maybe put her on her shoulder. And I mean, every single time. At least that's the way I remember it. So then she'd take baby and she'd start walking around the house. And what happens? What does baby do? Baby's a bird. Right? Baby flies off her shoulder which I was always amused by because, again, baby now is flying in a very small living room frantically. How am I doing? Frantically looking for a place to somehow end this, and she didn't quite ever get the reality that, you know, maybe to land on a couch or something would be better than just going into the flat wall and then sliding down. Okay? Now, here's my daughter. Every every time, baby takes off. Oh, 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 oh baby, oh, baby, baby, oh, oh, baby, baby. Oh, baby ba, ba. And then picks her up. You know. Oh, are you okay? Pat the hand, pat the hand. Okay. Oh, back into the cage. I mean, it was just habitual. And the Holy Spirit said, Dad, there's an epiphany here for you. And I got it. And so hang on. Now, this is this is the honest-to-goodness valuable part of this. So one day, as I was tempted to go into lecture number 186, instead, I sat down and I said, when you take baby out of the cage... And baby goes flying around the house. I said, why do you freak out? And she's kind of like, okay, this is a weird conversation. So I'm helping her think through this. And I'm like, you love baby, right? Well, yeah. You don't want anything to happen to baby, right? No. And I said, so when she starts flying, Isn't that why you go ballistic and Right? And said. now she's like, well, yeah. I said, what is baby doing? I said, baby is doing what God made baby to do, meaning fly. And yet you know, because of who baby is and what baby doesn't know, about landing. <laughs> that there's danger now every time she takes off of your shoulder and because you love her, you're freaking out after her and making an idiot. You look self look like an idiot until she crashes and burns into something. I said, and baby's only doing what God made her to do. And I said, Daughter Sorry. I said, I know full well that you as a preteen or a teen, whatever she was, I said, I know that you're growing and I know that things have to change and that, that you have to have more liberties and we got to let go and we got to turn certain things over and all that. I understand all that. And I know that you're doing that is you're doing exactly what God created you to do, meaning grow up and mature. Said, but I love you. And so when you want to do something, my snappery answer is no. It's me going, oh, daughter, 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 daughter. Because I know the dangers and the perils out there. I am not kidding you one bit. That one little communication between us changed everything for the rest of her time that she lived under our roof. One time, that one conversation. Why? Because instead of me, you know, her just hearing, and she certainly heard many times, it's because we love you, right? But all of a sudden, I stepped into her world with something that she could relate to personally and emotionally. And she could see why she acts rather, you know, kind of, uh, you know, ridiculous overreacting and now she understood why dad did and acted the way he does at a gut emotional level and i kid you not it changed everything from that day on so jesus is in the boat and he brings up a rather important life issue using the topic of bread. Why? Because the disciples were talking amongst themselves about bread. And so the master communicator reaches into their world, so to speak, that familiar world. They're talking about bread. Okay, I'm going to use the idea of leaven, right? That's yeast. So he reaches into their world for that moment. And he takes something very familiar to them, like a cockatiel, and he uses that familiarity to bring a much more important but utterly non-bread related issue to the fore. Bread was never the issue. Which is why Jesus replies in verse 17, really? Gosh. You think I'm talking about bread? I'm not talking about bread. I'm talking about the invasive, expansive, polluting effect of the worldview, of the perversion of truth and the motives of the Pharisees and of Herod. Using what I call a word picture, as I said, can break barriers where there has been no previous success. I know we're a little late. If you want to see a biblical, I think the most profound word picture in the Bible, think about Nathan and King David. and All that Nathan did with Uriah and Bathsheba and everything else. And Nathan comes in one day, and Nathan just doesn't go up to the king and go, David, you idiot, you're a murderer, you're an adulterer, you're this, you're that, and you need to repent before God. He would have been right in doing so. Of course, as the king, you don't know how that's going to work out. And instead, he goes into this story about a man who had a little ewe lamb. And he goes on and he takes, he boy, he takes, I mean, David takes the bait, swallows the hook. Yeah, and you can read that for yourself in 2 Samuel, I'm going to guess. Ah, I wrote it down. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. Jesus is so, (laughs) not me. (laughs) Yeah, we should have heard amens throughout this whole place. And even though you see him in in his desperation to get people to grab their salvation, he is broken in such a way that God chose a word never used in the Bible except at one time and in the context of Jesus being smitten with agony for the hardness of the hearts of the Pharisees. That is that loving, compassionate Savior. That is our God. We may we stand, close our time in prayer. Lord,
1: just reflecting on so much of what Bill said, every time I look at you, it's easy to see how sorry I truly am. Sorry in, in a pitiful way, and sorry in a remorseful way, and, and hopefully sorry in a repentant way. It's also perplexing and yet somehow comforting, Lord, to know that you do grieve. You you grieve at the hardness of our hearts. And it makes me even sorrier to know that you bled for, for us, you bled for me, and that you continue to bleed for us. But again, it's comforting to know that you do that because you love us. You truly love us. Lord, help us to identify with that love. Help us to embrace it and to and to take on that love when we when we think of of how you want us to love, and Lord, we ask that you help us to choose love to love you first, to love other believers, and perhaps most importantly to love those who who don't yet love you and who don't maybe even like us. Difficult, Lord, yet we know we can do it because, because of you, because you first loved us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.